welcome to Life Hurts, God Heals. I'm one of your hosts, Kim Ward. And I'm your other host, Kurt Flagel. And we welcome you to the next season of Life Hurts, God Heals. And we're kicking it off with an awesome interview with a guy who I've come to know and cherish in just a short amount of time. His name is Adam Ormord. And today we're going to hear about a little bit of Adam's story. And for those of you like me who have struggled with father wounds at some point in your life or parent wounds, I think you will appreciate and get a lot out of Adam's story where God has met him in the midst of his pain and how he's walking with God through the healing of those wounds. And I think the the word for today is hope. I believe that's the word that I believe you will get out of this particular episode. So welcome and thank you for listening. And Adam, welcome to Life Hurts God Heals. Kurt, hello. And Kim, it's good to be here with you. Thanks for inviting me. We've already had a great start to this conversation and prayer time. And I'm excited to see where this is going to go. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's it's been a pleasure getting to know you. And uh, this is all you're doing. You're the one who reached out to me. We, we've been both a part of a, a life coaching organization. Uh, Jeff Kelligwire, who leads it. Shout out, Jeff. Yeah, he's awesome. That was our I first guess. connection was when I saw you in some former fashion in a, in a meeting that, that Jeff had assembled. And I thought, I'd like to get to know Kurt. And that was the first one. And we actually kind of reached out to each other. I reached out to you. And then that just got put on hold for quite a while. And then more recently, I started to see your name popping up with um, ESDA, which is an association for Christ-centered spiritual directors. And I thought, is this the same guy that I reached out to from, you know, Jeff's uh, transformational coaching and, and did a little bit more digging? And sure enough, so I just kind of went back around and said, Kurt, I'd like to meet you. And I remember when we first did get a chance to meet, you're like, I have no idea why we're doing this. But I think we talked for maybe three hours. So listener, beware, this might be long. Or or we will trust oh. in the power of editing tools. That's right. <laughs> but it was a joy to get to know you, Kurt, and your heart and, and uh, seeing the different podcast episodes that you're posting on our ESDA Facebook group and, and stuff. So and yeah, true to form, you're exactly who you mm. appear to be. Um, a guy who is doing all of this work and ministry because, well, because you love the Lord and you believe in the power and anointing of his presence, his ability to heal, uh, even today, and life's greatest wounds and the smallest to the greatest. And uh, that's who you are. And um, I've I've come to love that about you already in a short amount of time. I think this may be the record for the shortest amount of time of getting me emotional on an episode of Life Hurts God Heals. So. Good job, Adam. Thanks for that. Now that we know more about me, <laughs> um, yeah, just tell a little of your story and, you know, even up to what you're doing right mm -hmm. now, we would love to hear that. Well, I'll tell you, I live in Denver, Colorado, and love it here. I moved here with my wife about three years ago and our, our youngest daughter. We have four kids and our youngest daughter was the last one at home. So she came with us out here to Denver three years ago from Arizona. And Arizona is pretty much where I grew up and did ministry, you know, um, for the last three decades, ministry, mostly in the local church. 
uh, worship ministry in Arizona and in Colorado and kind of back and forth. Literally, this is my third time living in Colorado. And, you know, in between all of that was Arizona. And that's where I grew up as well. So I'll tell more of my story about growing up in Arizona in a pastor's home. I'm a PK through and through from a small town. So kind of like Footloose, but uh, <laughs> I, I didn't have any friends who danced like they did, nor could I. But yeah, so we are here. And the last few years, I've been working for a ministry that's more of a missions organization. And just recently, just at the beginning of this year, 2022, I um, answered the call and stepped into a role of executive director for a ministry that's really focused on spiritual formation in the church and really focused on spiritual relationships uh, called Grafted Life Ministries. And Grafted Life is the actually like the parent uh, ministry of ESDA, which is a spiritual directors association for for Christ-centered directors. So I just stepped into that role a few months ago. So I'm learning uh, and transitioning into something new there. It's really an amazing arc of how I ended up here where I am in this role. I'm here in, in Colorado. I can point to about, about 12 years ago down in Colorado Springs, where I was a worship pastor, uh, restored into ministry and found my way, uh, my wife and I both, to a ministry of soul care up in the mountains of Colorado, outside of the Springs. It was called the Potter's Inn. And maybe some of your listeners are familiar with Steve and Gwen Smith. And the Potter's Inn was a ministry of soul care, of, of kind of healing and coming alongside pastors, missionaries, marketplace leaders, giving them a place where they could experience God's beauty, enjoy rest, have people listen to their stories, uh, kind of listen people back to life. I fell in love with that ministry because, frankly, I needed it. I also realized it had been a theme in my own family's life, my parents' life, too. That's something that they had needed years earlier. So it's really amazing how all these years later, God kind of put me in that, that trajectory of being able to care for pastors and leaders that would be like my dad and my mom, who years and years ago were seeking some kind of help for their burned out souls. Mm. And um, so the last 12 years have really been this trajectory of moving in that direction. And here is where I am right now on this journey. I, I liken it to um, Peterson's phrase, a long obedience in the same direction, which we know he didn't come up with. He's, he took that from, from Nietzsche, but still, it's a great phrase to describe um, the journey of transformation, I feel like, has taken place in my life. And, and, and that was in the midst of ministry. And I can share more of that story of just kind of entering into ministry at a young age and, and the pitfalls along the way and realizing I didn't have the tools to do ministry from a healthy identity. And so God and his goodness and his kindness put me in those paths that allowed me to taste and see his goodness and, and know the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, right? That's what it's been like for me. So that's kind of where I am today. 
excited about the ways that we get to serve churches and we get to serve spiritual directors that are doing this incredible work of coming alongside and listening well to people, listening them back to soul health, back to the heart of God. And I couldn't be happier about that vocation. Uh, My wife and I, my wife's Rebecca, we've been married for almost 30 years. And we also started a ministry of soul care that we run here in in Denver. And our heart is, our desire is to be able to provide soul care, especially to under-resourced people who may not be able to afford your kind of your typical retreat in the mountains kind of an experience. And uh, so our heart's desire is to come alongside and care for those who care for others, even if they don't know how that's going to happen in their life. So our prayers always, God, point us to those people, point them to us, help connect us so that we can we can care for them and, and see them and hear them, walk with them, strengthen and encourage them. So that's what we do. And I love it. Yeah, it sounds amazing. When you say the word soul care, for those who may not know all the nuances, would you give a, like maybe a, a description of what you mean when you say you offer this ministry? Yeah, soul care is, a, you know, when you go to the gym and you see all those people lifting the weights and looking at themselves in the mirror and they can see like immediate results as, they, as they're caring for their body. You also know that when you pull the dipstick out of your oil, you can actually see kind of the health of do we need more oil or don't we? Uh, how do we know whether our soul is healthy and why does that even matter? Mm. Jesus seemed to think it mattered when he said, you know, what would it profit a man or a woman to gain everything, to have it all, to have the biggest ministry, the whatever, uh, but in that process, lose their soul or to have their soul become diseased, not in a good space. And so this, this idea of paying attention to these things that we typically never slow down to pay attention to until it's too late. Mm. You know, I mean, you see the check engine light, but even that isn't enough for some people, that blinking light. So what are the blinking lights in our own lives? Are we becoming more irritable with our spouses, with our coworkers, in our congregations, whatever? Are we finding ourselves not being able to sleep because of anxiety? What, what are the things that are causing our souls to be diseased? And how can we, um, you know, intentionally put in some, some better guardrails, perhaps, or, or really do the work with God? God's the one who's going to do this work in us. And that's probably the biggest thing is God does the work. We think we got to keep on doing more and more stuff, but God is the one who's going to care for our souls. We have to put ourselves in a position and a place for him to do that. Mm. And so soul care is really just this idea of saying, I, I can't, God, I can't, and uh, you can, and I think I'll let you. To me, that's soul care. It's coming to a place of realization, God, I can't, I've tried and I can't, but I do trust and believe that you can, and I think I'll let you. Whatever that letting you is, that's soul care. That's beautiful. And we can't tell, you know, how our soul necessarily is, oftentimes until it's too late. And I think my longing and desire, whether it's through LifePoint Ministries, which is what my wife and I do, or through Grafted Life or ESDA, is that we would become more intentional beings, paying attention to all the parts of our life, all the things that make up our soul, that make a healthy soul. 
So we have to kind of understand, well, what are we talking about? We're talking about soul. That's another conversation. But paying attention to it all, really. Bringing it all to God and say, God, all of this matters, right? Yeah. This all matters. So that's, I mean, that's the idea. And, and soul care, so what it practically looks like is a, is a ministry of listening and coming alongside someone, kind of taking them out of that place of where they're kind of rubbing up against all of this irritation or depression or just burnout, pulling them into some kind of a space that evokes beauty or wonder uh, or curiosity, even though it's hard for them to you know, really slow down and be in that place. Oftentimes we would hear at Potter's Inn, you know, sometimes pastors and missionaries would come to that place and we'd encourage them to go spend the afternoon you know, out on the prayer trail and pray with God. And it's hard to hear people saying, it's been 20 years since I think I've really, really done anything like that. You know, just so busy, so busy working for God, trying to achieve. So the ministry of soul care matters a lot to me, um, not just because uh, I, it was helpful to me, not just because it's kind of a theme in my family's life, but because I really do care about the church and I care about the people that God has, has raised up to, to lead and serve the church and long to see them living and loving and serving from a place of, of real health with God. So what I hear, tell me if this is generally accurate, please. But what I hear you saying is soul care is helping people become aware of when the check engine light first comes on, and where, where there's some emptiness developing, some dis-ease. Mm -hmm. Becoming aware of that and helping them have the tools to know what to do, how to fill up when the check engine yeah. light comes on. Right, yeah. Tools include, you know, your community, your expectations of how much you think you can do, your your expectations of being able to control outcomes, you know, and learning that you can't necessarily control the outcomes, but God can, yes, you know, and does and is. Um, and so, yeah, it's not just a kind of theoretical, you're not okay, and let's point out all the ways you're not, but it really is kind of a way of, I guess, moving back into the gym, back to that metaphor, and starting with the smaller weights, you know. What are the small, little, intentional steps that we can take today to find our identity again in God, with God, and, and work our way to this place of health that we can then lead and, and live from? I loved what you said about small steps. You know, being an Enneagram 9, it's easy to get overwhelmed with the idea that, oh, it has to be all these big changes all yeah. at once. You know, yeah. and with that nice one wing, I'm also impatient. So. I want the big changes and the little ones often don't feel fast enough. And Kurt's laughing because he's seen me get frustrated with myself multiple times. Yeah. I, you know, from a physical kind of a metaphor point of view, like I don't like to go to the gym because I see where I am and I see where the guys and girls who've been doing this, you know, for a while are. And the steps for me to get from here to there <laughs> seem too right. insurmountable. Um, now, that's what a coach will often come alongside and, and help with, you know, say, I'll take you where you are. And I'll give you these small steps. You know, years ago, 2006, I ran a marathon. I can't believe I ran a marathon. But I can point to point you to the the, the ways that I started to first realize, I think I might want to run my city's 10K. 
and actually maybe get faster every year when I ran that and how that kind of eventually morphed into, if I can do that, what if I pick a date, you know, a few months down the road and, and try for a half marathon? I mean, as soon as I cross the finish line, it's like, I, I'll never be more in shape than I am right now <laughs> to be able to plan for this marathon that's a few months down the road and go, go work on that. So uh, I did it. I can tell you right now, I'm trying to get back in shape. Career. I told you I was going to be out in San Jose to run a half marathon. It's, it's a struggle, man. It is a struggle. But it's a daily um, getting up and doing the little things, you know, mm-hmm. taking those little runs to prepare me for those little longer runs, you know, on the weekends and preparation. So people who are runners or whatever understand this. But but I think you're you're absolutely right, Kim, that we, you know, we need to be comforted to know that God is always putting out these little little steps for us, these little movements toward him. You know, scripture for me, one of the scriptures that always drew my attention was just that scripture that said, draw close to God and he will draw near to you. I know theologically that he's always with me, but that that invitation to draw close to God and he will draw near to me is a small step I can take today in the midst of my woundedness, my brokenness, my anxiety, my fear, my depression, my burnout. I can take a small step to just stop and go, God, are you there? Like, I want to draw my attention back to you. And that's a small step in the right direction that becomes over time, a long obedience in the same direction. Nice. Yeah, that's good. A much needed reminder for those of us who are very impatient with ourselves. Mm. But I mean, this all had to start somewhere. So we were saying we were going to get into your story. Mm -hmm. It's been awesome to hear what God's doing now. But we all have our quote, if you're going hero related, your origin story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> My story starts not with me, but with a guy who met a girl at Bible college back in Illinois in the late 60s or very early 70s. My dad had grown up with a, an incredible pastor who was really kind of nurturing these a few young men in his church to kind of go on and do some pretty significant things for God. It's, it's a really cool story when he tells me who was kind of in his group. So my dad went to Bible college, but my dad went from a real place of, of brokenness. You see his dad, my grandpa, abandoned my dad and his three younger brothers and my dad's mom when they're all kind of in their teenage years. My dad was the oldest. And yeah, his dad just walked out. So my dad, he's he's kind of a shorter guy. Dad, if you're listening to this, it's true. You are. You're short. Okay. <laughs> he's he's the shortest of the brothers, but the oldest. And so, you know, I, I'm not really sure, you know, how that formed him in terms of this need to maybe protect his brothers, to protect his mom, to step into some kind of a role. But I do know that when his mom, my grandma got remarried to another man. My dad was just old enough that he did not have to be adopted by his stepdad who ended up adopting his other three brothers. My dad has my last name, but he's the only one of the brothers because he wasn't adopted by his mom's new husband. So he went to Bible college really with a great idea of what ministry life was going to look like for him, kind of set up to succeed, but also carrying I would, I think a significant father wound. 
he met my mom um, who came in as this music major with a beautiful voice and kind of swept him off his feet, I think. And uh, at a pretty young age, they ended up having two sons. My, my brother's older than me and me. And it was to the point while they're in Bible college. And it was to the point where he couldn't continue Bible college. He needed to get a job and not finish school. So very, very young, uh, my brother and myself, we ended up moving from where the Bible college was up into the bigger city of Chicago. And my dad was doing all kinds of jobs. Like, I mean, it's funny to look back at the pictures of the things he was doing, but I can tell you it wasn't what he wanted to do. And pretty quickly, he ended up moving my, my mom and my brother and myself all the way from the Midwest, Chicago area. I wasn't even three yet. I was like barely over two, all the way out to the desert of Arizona, Lake Havasu City. And it was like a brand new town, like 1974 or something like that. Had just wow. barely gotten started as a town. And uh, he moved us out there. There were some other family members out there at the time that said, hey, you should come out here. It's a great place to start again. So that's what he did. Again, lots of different kinds of jobs while I think always imagining and hoping for that day that he could actually do this ministry in the church that he longed to do. But he didn't, you know, he didn't have a Bible college degree and he had two young boys and uh, he had this family to take care of. So he just worked and worked. And I know that he had in his heart, I will not do to my family what my dad did to me. My mom came from an interesting kind of family dynamic as well. Uh, where some broken, some broken home stuff. So I, I can tell you that as a young kid, I, I just remember having four grandmas and four grandpas, but they all lived in the Midwest. We were the only ones way out in Arizona. Uh, so they would come and visit us and stuff. When my grandpa, who was my dad's dad, who had abandoned his family, when he would come through, he always had a different wife. And I remember as a young age going, are you my grandma? <laughs> you know, like, totally naive and just innocent. Like, so are you my grandma? Like, cool. I get another grandma, you know? <laughs> but the interesting thing about that is my dad wanted to somehow maintain a relationship with his dad. I mean, he kept his dad's name. He welcomed his dad in whenever he'd come through, no matter how dysfunctional that whole thing was. But my dad, I really do believe, had set in his heart, and my mom too, like th that dysfunction of our parents ends here. Like we're going we're gonna to turn that tide. So fast forward a few years, my dad had an opportunity to actually go into ministry, but it required us moving away from Lake Havasu to a bigger city. And so we moved and he took an associate ministry role. And then just a couple years after that, Back in Lake Havasu, that church there said, hey, we need a pastor and invited my dad to come and take that pastoral role. So we moved back to, to Lake Havasu, where, where we were for quite a few years. So my dad, even though he hadn't finished Bible college, had an opportunity finally to, to do that ministry that he'd always had in his heart to do. But with that, with, with his own, I would say, father wounds, with his story of longing for one thing, but kind of being stuck in another, I think he carried a certain amount of anger. And I have one older brother, and he's a really strong tempered, that firstborn strong-willed kind of a temperament. And there's a certain way to discipline strong-willed children. So that's how he was disciplined. I had an opposite personality. I was pretty sensitive and did not need to be, you know, spanked. 
to feel the weight of my, the guilt of my sin. Like all you had to do is look at me cross <laughs> and not cry. But, you know, I think where we kind of get into my, some of my story, I can't really say that my dad did a very good job at differentiating between my brother and what he needed and, and me and maybe what would be most effective for me. So a lot of the memories I have of growing up in a home where my dad eventually became that pastor that he wanted to be was also kind of a hard place to exist with a tender heart. Mm. Okay. So there are lots of ways in which I would disappoint my dad who we were talking earlier about Enneagram, who was like a one, I think on the Enneagram and just really wanted things done right. You know? And so just from a young age, I remember being very fearful about my dad coming home and checking up on, you know, the chores I was supposed to do or whatever when I was a little kid and it just wasn't good enough, you know? And so then the consequences of that were always hard for me. You guys remember that, that movie? Well, it's like, it's the most popular movie at Christmas, the Christmas story that waiting for the dad to come home and hearing the dad pull up in the car and you kind of hearing the yelling. My dad wasn't like a yeller. He didn't yell at the neighbors, but that sense of almost like impending doom. I lived with that. I lived with that way past the years I should have lived with that. You know, talk about my own father wound would just be this very much living in fear of what my father thought of me and how well I performed on, on a lot of these kind of menial tasks. And I use that word perform. My parents are both musical. I, I mentioned that my mom had a beautiful voice. She really did. So in Arizona, way back in like the late 70s, early 80s, Churches were always having singers and, you know, like revivals and they'd bring in singers and do concerts and stuff. They don't do that now. But man, back in those days, my family, they did the circuit from like Havasu all around Arizona. And my brother and I would go and we'd be like young, young, young. And I remember like being invited up to the stage to sing the song and everybody wrapped attention just on, on me or my brother and kind of being like that moment in the show where everybody gets a chance to laugh a little bit at the kids singing the songs about germs, my invisible dog or whatever. That was kind of what I grew up in. Even though my dad wasn't quite yet in full-time ministry, he was doing this music ministry thing. And I was always, I just had that awareness that I have to, I have to perform. I have to do this. I have to do it with a good attitude because I'd get, I'd get in trouble if I did it with a bad attitude. I don't mean that to sound like a hurtful thing to to my parents or anything, but I just know that even your attitude counted, you know, that's the kind of stuff I carried with me. I don't know that my dad is always safe or I shouldn't say that. I don't know that I'm safe with my dad. I don't want to disappoint him. And one of the best, easiest ways for me to disappoint him is not is by not having a good attitude even when I'm, you know, performing for God, man, when you don't do the work to like unravel that stuff and you go like straight off to Bible college and in the ministry, guess what you carry with you? A big gaping father wound, a cannonball wound. Like Brian Regan would say, I, I have a cannonball wound. Look, it's gaping, you know, but I didn't know it because I was going to go be a worship pastor. And I met my wife at Bible college and we had kids right out of Bible college. So this thing, I lived with it for quite a while, but that, you know, that's just kind of the, the, the way that I was brought up and I've done a lot of work to understand, I think the dynamics 
the motivations that must have led my dad to move, you know, halfway across the country to a place where nobody knew him. To understand that and have compassion on him and with him and for him of what he must have been carrying himself. So that's the nuanced part of this conversation. And I have had conversations with my dad along the way as I have traversed some really treacherous cliffs that almost killed me, that almost destroyed me. I have the grace and the ability to come back and have these conversations with my dad where other people don't, Mm. you know, not necessarily. So I'm grateful I've had the opportunity to process some of this stuff with my dad. He's willing to process it with me and to have grace for him because of, of how it must have been for him. And you know what the hardest thing has been? For me to have grace in myself. Mm. It sounds to me like you've adopted that hard stance towards you that your dad had in some ways. Yeah, I would say that has been the um, work for the last Well, I've been aware of the work that needed to be done for the last 12 years. A few years before that, it was, I don't know what the heck's going on. (laughs) And before that, yeah, definitely. How I would describe it is that I always loved my dad, but I was afraid of mostly my dad. And I didn't want to disappoint him because I knew the trouble that I would get. So I was aware enough not to like outwardly rebel, like the footloose you know, picture of the typical PK that just runs all over town. I was aware enough not to do that because I think the worst thing as I, as I learned that could happen is I would do something that would paint my dad in a negative light. And then I would, I'd suffer that. So what that did, I mean, from a pretty young age, I I know it just kind of turned me inward. Mm. So it wasn't as if I didn't sin. It wasn't as if I no, it was worse. It was it was an inward, in my head and in my heart, shame and the message I kept taking away because this was all inward, not external, but internal, was you know, I'm a piece of crap. You know, lying was something I, I became pretty accustomed to. And that would be one of the points of pain that I would suffer when my dad caught me lying. You know, and so there's a cycle, right? Why was I lying? Because I was afraid, you know. But then when I got caught, which I always did, I'd suffer mm. and be called a liar. Not, not that lying was something I did, but I was a, I was a liar. At least that was what I carried. Yeah. The message of so, shame. Yeah. And that's just an example. Of, I think we, <laughs> I wrote some notes down. I was like, I think we all suffer some father wounds. And I know as a father, there have been words I'm sure I've spoken that have planted themselves in my kids hearts and souls that they will need to work with God to pull those things out and be healed from them too. I've tried not to make statements like you are this or you are that, but kind of stick to the thing you're doing is, is, is what we have to deal with. But um, I, I don't know if, if my dad or my mom were, uh, if they were thinking those thoughts or not. I just know that the message I received was I'm a liar. I'm no good. And out there, outside of myself is not safe. So going into ministry, getting married pretty young. I was 20 when I got married, 22 when I had my first son. I didn't know what I didn't know yet. I didn't know what what to pay attention to. I just kind of knew that I came from a certain family system that shaped me to be a kid who went off to Bible college, right? And I can do that. 
I know how to do that. You know, and and I met my wife and she came from a totally different family system. And so we had lots of work to do in our marriage and and, and we didn't have a lot of time to think about it or process it because we had kids pretty young, just like my parents did. I wouldn't change anything now. I wouldn't even change my story. Mm. Shaped me into who I am. Right before my junior year of high school, we were living in Lake Havasu and I must not have been very aware of what was going on. I, I don't know if I had friends I was just hanging out with all the time or what. But um, all of a sudden, uh, my parents were gone and they, their intention was to be gone for three months. And they were going to a, a place where they could receive some care for some burnout as pastor and the pastor's spouse. And um, we were living with another family member. And so my brother was going to be a senior in high school. I was going to be a junior. And we kind of had this whole summer without our parents. I didn't really understand, Kurt, what, where they were, what they were doing, or why. I, I do remember about a month and a half or so into their time away, something happened, and something caused me to be pretty out of sorts. And I remember calling them and kind of complaining either about you know the family member we were living with or my brother or something. I don't remember what it was, and being pretty emotional about it. Well, and like two days later, my parents were home. They came back home and I was really, really happy to see them, kind of surprised and still wasn't really aware of like what they were doing by leaving there and coming back to be with us. But I know that like while they came home, we went to church on Sunday morning and after church, and this is the middle of summer. And if you know anything about Lake Havasu, it's really hot. I remember after church, my dad stayed inside and they, they had some kind of a meeting with leadership. And my brother and I, myself and my mom were sitting out in the car in the heat. And he finally came out a couple hours later, got in the car and said, well, that's that. That's it. We're done. And we moved to Phoenix and nobody really talked about it. Nobody said like, what happened? I, I really didn't even understand what's going on. So it was a, many years later as I'm now in ministry where I'm, I'm starting to ask these questions. What happened <laughs> that day? Well, the hardest thing for me is that my parents left that retreat center when they did, and they never went back. And we ended up moving. My dad found his way back into another ministry job and then just kind of kept going, just kept right on going. That's why I care so much about soul care, because I don't want those kinds of opportunities for God to come and do some real important work in us to get short-circuited and then instead of doing that hard work that suffering produces, kind of just find ourselves back in that, that ministry role or whatever, whatever it was that we were doing that wasn't working in the first place, we're just right back, right back there. So, I mean, I, I remember thinking back on that going, wow, I've even talked to my dad about that. Like what would have happened if you'd have stayed? And it's, it's all just speculation and conjecture, but for him, there were some things that he was just starting to break through in. And then he never had a chance to do that again. So my greatest desire for him is that God will put him in paths. And, and I get to be that for him now. Actually, it's amazing. I get to send things his way, have conversations with him that kind of like plunge the depths. And he goes there with me. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. So yeah, I think what you're, what you're picking up on, you're right. I ended up putting taking a hard stance. You want to know what my father wound was? It was that I had a hard stance toward myself that I would not have toward you. 
I wouldn't have toward Kim or anybody else. I could sing and tell you all about the amazing grace of God. Just it wasn't tattooed on my heart. It wasn't, it wasn't the story I was telling myself or letting myself live into. That's how that father wound affected me. So that was the work. That was the work. I resonate with that pretty hard since grace is still the one thing I'm like, Skirt knows I give it easily to him and everyone else. And it's still definitely where I'm learning and growing myself right now. I have a one in my life, although it's my mom and not my dad, like everything you were saying about turning inward and that being the safe place. I'm just like, dang, that's Mm. very recognizable. Mm. Like you have to have some point where you're like, this isn't working. I can't keep doing this. Yeah. I guess what was the tipping point? Well, I, I told you earlier, or alluded to the fact that I was restored to ministry. There, there was a point where that was, that was where I realized I had gone off the cliff because I was carrying around so much low self-esteem that I was susceptible to all kinds of lies from the enemy. So as that played itself out, and then the, the restoration theme of God followed, we always want to think that we're through a transition way before we are, right? <laughs> like whether you move or you take a new job or whatever it is, we always want to place ourselves on the other side of the bridge. Something kind of just slaps us in the face and says, dude, you're not even halfway over that bridge yet. There's so much more work to be done in this transition. And for me, it was kind of getting back closer to that time frame of about 2009 when I was back in in a ministry role in worship ministry. And here's how I describe it. I thought that I had done all the work I needed to do and everything was good. Everybody said, you're good. Go do ministry, go be a pastor. And yet I would stand up on stage, put those headphones in my ears, you know, those, those, those earphones for worship people. I would describe it like this. I felt like, like, like the devil had a direct line to my soul. Every time I put those things on and it was like, you don't belong here. You're, you're still not who you, who you say you are. It's only a matter of time before everybody knows that. And some of this stuff is just, you know, like messages of four carries with them. Right. And it's been helpful for me to, to learn that there's something dysfunctional in you that you, you lack that other people have, but really it was just that it was like, wow, I am not fully restored, not even close. And so my story then is by the grace of God, finding this ministry, Potter's Inn. My wife actually took a job working for Potter's Inn up in the mountains, finding my way there and just all of a sudden starting to have a framework and language for everything that I was feeling. Finally, I could actually be seen and known and not be okay. And that's okay. And so pivotal for me and for my wife, we realized we still had lots of work to do, even just in, in our own our own soul's restoration and our marriage and, and so many things. So God was gracious to give us the opportunity to be a part of that soul care ministry. And that's, that's where it turned. But I will tell you, there was that in my life, there was that falling apart. And in the middle of that, I have right here a book that in the middle of the falling apart, it's called Life of the Beloved. And this is the copy by Henry Nowen that somebody gave me in the middle of the falling apart. And all I wanted to do was believe that it was true. 
that I was the beloved of God. And so when I would read this book, it felt like a shower of grace upon my soul. It felt so good. It felt too good to be true. And it felt it felt true. And then it was gone. It was just like washed through you. And, and all I could have said was, I, did, I don't have a container to hold this. You know, I don't know how to hold this, this truth that God is wanting me to receive. And, and so that was a precursor then to then finding myself in this ministry environment where they were literally helping me and my wife and so many others build this kind of container that could contain this love of God. You know, identity is the key thing. What's my identity? What do I believe about myself? Isn't true. And then reimagining what life with God is supposed to look like. Because if you always think that God the Father is angry and upset with you for how well you perform, then anytime you don't feel like you're living up to his standards or you're spending enough time in the word and you know you're you're not doing it right, then all that stuff just piles on more and more of this kind of sense of failing. So having to unravel all of that and kind of be offered a more of a way of grace that felt good. And I finally had to learn how to live into. That was the tipping point for me was if you knew and you had the resources to step into and believe this, then what are you waiting for? And that was the sense I got from that ministry is what are you waiting for? You know, God's pursuing you. God's welcoming you home. God's not mad at you. Mm. God's not disappointed in you. God's not waiting for you to fail and screw up. Quite the opposite. God doesn't even take a neutral stance. God is the 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 far opposite end of that. God is like 100% pursuing you, pursuing me, calling me home. He's the prodigal God whose abundance and lavishness is being poured out for the sinner who is just so so freely like wasting kind of those resources of love and that self-righteous person who doesn't think they need it. And God's just, either way, whatever brother you are in the story of the prodigal son, either way, God's God's that abundant, lavish, pouring out, never ceasing God who wants to give us the good things from his heart. You know, John 10, 10, when Jesus says, the thief comes to steal or kill or destroy, but I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And so like one of the best questions we can ask ourselves, whether we're dealing with a father wound or some kind of identity thing, is just like, well, you know, tell me, how's it working for you? <laughs> how's this hard stance that you have built against yourself, but nobody else, how's that working for you? Does that feel like life abundant and free? And it didn't for me. I love the word holiness now, like never before, because that idea of separation and how God separates our view of our earthly father. He separates that out of our viewpoint so that we can see him more clearly. That's holiness. Mm. He gets the finite earthly junk out of the way. And, you know, he separates himself out so we can see how different he is. Any good stuff that our parents displayed was him, but all that other stuff distorted who he is. Would you agree with that? Yeah. For sure. I like that you mentioned that all the good things our parents displayed were him. That's true too. Yeah, it is. But that all gets muddled, right? And we, we get a mixed message of God. Yeah, yeah which... I had a hard time 
distinguishing in kind of some of my earlier years of ministry. I don't know who my boss is. Is it that senior pastor? Is it the people? Is it God? Is it my dad? My dad's like living on the other side of the country, but they were all muddled. My image of God was also mixed up in my image of how well am I pleasing my senior pastor in those early years. And this is why it's so important for us to understand the holiness of God, how different he is from any other person in our lives, that he is whole and complete, the only one whole and complete, the only one who is absolutely fully good, fully loved to us. It really helps us hold to him and nothing else, helps us in that process let go of everyone else to fully find our hope in our relationship with him. This is a great place to end part one of our conversation with Adam Ornward as we wrap up talking about his story, which is a powerful story of healing and hope, and now move into hearing his spiritual practices that help him keep his focus on God and nothing else. So we thank you so much for listening to part one, and we invite you back to listen to part two, because his powerful story now moves into powerful practices that help him walk out his story. So don't miss it next time on Life Hurts, God Heals. And if you're curious to learn more about Life Hurts, God Heals, we are actually part of a larger ministry called Elevate Slow. Elevate Slow is a discipleship training church intent on seeing disciple-making movements spread across the world. You can find out more information about this movement by going to our website, elevateslow.com. That's elevateslo.com. And as always, please remember, you are God's beloved, so be loved.